Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We ask, oh God, that wherever we have come into this place this morning, some of us are so joyful and grateful and today is, is good and we're thankful for our kids and moms and, and, and some of us are... We're grieving because we walk in today without someone we had with us last year, or maybe today evokes some sort of pain and heartache for us. God, we just ask that wherever you may find us, that you would speak to us in that place and that you would take us where you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So I think probably my favorite story about my mom uh, comes out of my teenage years. And if you've been around here for a while, maybe you've heard me share this story before, and it's, it's, um, it's a meaningful story to me, so that's why I've, I've told it a couple times. But when I was 13 or 14 years old, my brother and I used to take my mom's car out for a joyride. And this was the 80s, and at the time, actually, it wasn't the 80s. It was probably, it was 90, 1990. But my mom drove a 1982 Chevy Caprice station wagon. It was dual-toned, and it had this Jesus Save sticker on the back. And so my brother and I, you know, when my parents would be gone, we would take the car out for a little joyride around the neighborhood. And uh, typically, my brother would drive because he was older. He was 14 and a half. I was younger. I was only 13. And, um, and, and we were both very, very short. We hadn't had our growth spurt, and so we hadn't gotten tall like I am now, but, <laughs> but we would take the car out around the neighborhood, and one day, you know, after we had done this for a few months, you know, this happens sometimes with sin, it begins to build, and your heart begins to grow callous just to the seriousness of what you're doing, and so you take it a little bit further next time, and then a little bit further the time after that, and so, you know, one day, my parents were supposed to be gone for several hours, and my brother and I, we decided to take the Chevy Caprice station out onto the main streets. So before, it had just been around the neighborhood. But now we were, we were, we were in Long Beach, and we were going to go out onto the main roads. And so uh, we took the car out, and we began flying up Spring Street in Long Beach. And, and my brother and I are in the car. My brother's driving, you know, and we're both like this, you know, like... And I can just imagine what people thought, you know, the terror that they must have felt when we flew by them in the Chevy Caprice station wagon, these two little guys. They, for, the, for most people, they, they, they wouldn't think we we're more than 10 or 11 years old, you know. And so we're, we're flying up Spring Street, and, and we, we were enjoying ourselves. I mean, this was good, and we're just like, we, you know, we had the radio cranking it, you know, one of those, those like eight tracks was in the... And, um, and we're flying up Spring Street, and we're driving by a grocery store. My parents were supposed to be gone all day long, and we thought that they were going to be quite far away all day long. And we're driving by the grocery store, and we look out the window, and my parents are pulling out of the grocery store in their car. And, um, and so my brother and I are, are we're driving, and we look over, and my mom looks at us, and she's just like... Phew. And uh, so we're just like, oh no, what do we do? You know, we're like, let's go to Mexico, you know? And so, <laughs> no, we had to turn the car around and we drove back home and we get back home and my parents' car is parked out front 
and they're already in the backyard. We had done a few more laps. We were not sure yet, so we get home. And my mom is out in the garden, and she is, she's watering the plants, and she looks at us as we walk in, and she says, you boys are so lucky that your father didn't see you. And she said, and I didn't tell him. And on that day, my mom saved our lives. <laughs> I think it's true for probably most of us, even if, even if we don't from, come from the greatest of homes, maybe if, if our moms had let us down at some point in our life, there are points in time in your life where your mom came through. She was a hero to you. She rescued you. You know, I can remember when I was in seventh grade, and uh, it was uh, the year that we had the Whittier earthquake. And I remember I was just terrified of earthquakes. And I grew up, you know, with that consciousness of the big one occurring at any moment, the San Andreas Fault. And I remember that earthquake just freaked me out. And every night in the seventh grade, it seemed like for weeks on end, I would go into my, mom's, my mom and dad's room. I wouldn't go to dad's side of the bed. I'd go to mom, and mom was there for me. And she would welcome me in. Mom was my hero. And today, I want to take a pause from our little series called Stories Along the Way. And I want to just take some time reflecting together with you on one of the great mothers in Israel. Uh, a great mother who was a hero not just to her children and her family, but this mother was a hero to the entire nation. And so I want to invite you to enter with me into her story. Now, of course, this is not just the story of strong, wise Deborah. It is her story. Uh, there's also included in this story other characters. Uh, there's Barak, who I think in this story could be understood as the man who needed a mother. And then there's another woman who's called Jael, who is uh, something of a tough mother with a tent peg. And we're going to talk about her in a little bit. But I want to walk through this story, and I want us to reflect together on each one of these characters on this Mother's Day. Now, let me just set it in context. So the, the book of Judges, in which this story appears, occurs in a stage in Israel's history between her exodus from Egypt and the day when she got her king in Israel, namely David. And so this, is, this occurs between Moses and the Exodus and King David. And during this season, Israel had not yet established a stable political government. There was no king in the land. And so instead, Israel was ruled by a series of charismatic tribal leaders uh, labeled judges. And these were leaders that God would raise up and they would lead for a period of time over the nation of Israel. And Deborah was one of these judges. And where we pick up, it is a dark time in the, in the history of the nation. Listen to what it says. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So there's this cycle that occurs again and again and again in the book of Judges. The people sin, they rebel against God. God hands them over to some oppressive regime. He gives them over to their own sinful desires. And that's what happens here. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sesera, who lived in Herosheth, Hogoim, Hegoim. I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> Usually scripture readers, you know, they'll say, how do I say this word? I'm like, I don't know. Just say it confidently and everybody will think you know how to say it. 
Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Israel is in dire straits. They are being cruelly oppressed by Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Jabin's general is called Sesera. And Sesera gave oversight to a large and very terrifying army. The text tells us that he had 900 chariots of iron. I was reading a commentary this week, uh, an Old Testament scholar whose name is Robert Alter, and he points out that in the ancient world, almost nobody had chariots at this time, except for the most sophisticated, powerful, and wealthy of nations. And almost nobody at this stage, because this is right between Bronze Age and Iron Age, almost nobody had chariots of iron. And so this was high-tech military gear. And this threatened people's lives. And Sesera and Jabin used their instruments of warfare to terrorize the surrounding villages and nation states like Israel. And they would oppress them and they would raid their villages. They would oftentimes kidnap, sometimes assault their women and children. And so this was a terrifying space to live in. And so this is the setting in which the heroine, Deborah, arises. It's in a period of dark, cruel oppression. Now, I just want to pause, and I want us to to think a little bit more deeply about the situation in which Deborah and Barak and then Jaal arise. Because I think later in the New Testament, what the New Testament authors do is they take ancient enemies of Israel, like Pharaoh and Jabin, king of Canaan, And they use them almost metaphorically to describe the state of all all humanity. Namely, all humans live in places at times where we find ourselves underneath oppressive powers that can distort and destroy our humanity. We can find ourselves given over to addictive patterns. Uh, drugs and alcohol and any number of things that end up wreaking havoc on our own humanity, on our ability to live. We can find ourselves in toxic work situations, in toxic families. We can find ourselves in places where there is abuse and there is cruel oppression. We can find ourselves in, 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 in abusive relationships. And, and we, we can find ourselves in this place underneath you know, the cruel master of our own bitterness and unforgiveness that is just constricting our own humanity. And it's in this state that God raises up a deliverer for his people. And we're introduced next to the most prominent of these deliverers. Her name is Deborah. It says this, now Deborah was a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, and she was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So what do we learn about Deborah? Well, we learn first that she would sit in judgment. She was a prophetess which means that she spoke the word of God to the people of God. Later, she will approach Barak and she will say, has God not said to you? And then she would speak God's word to him. And then she sat as a judge. Now, she was unique in how she played her role as judge because every other judge in the book of Judges is a military leader, but not Deborah. 
In the ancient Near East, you wouldn't have a woman commanding an army, and Deborah would lead in other ways. It's interesting, you know, Ehud uh, was one of the judges, and his iconic thing that he was known for was he, he had these ninja-like skills. He was a left-handed warrior, and he would pull a knife out and could attack. And then there was Shamgar, who destroyed people with a, 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 an ox goad. And then, of course, there was Samson with his long hair that gave him power. And what was Deborah's thing? Like, what was the thing that, that kind of marked her out? And I think the thing that marked out Deborah was a palm. Notice in the text, it says that uh, she would sit under the palm of Deborah. Isn't that interesting? She sat underneath a palm. And what would she do underneath this palm? Well, she didn't sit and hold court in a palace. She would sit and hold court underneath this palm out in public so that people could come to her and receive wisdom from God to decide disputes that they had socially or relationally or, or uh, uh, legally. They would come to her like they did to Moses of old, and she would settle disputes for the people. And uh, I, I was thinking about this, you know, like here's Deborah, just, you know, she's just sitting underneath her palm, making judgments, you know, for the people to come to her. And I just thought every woman on Mother's Day should have her very own palm that she relaxes under and renders judgments from. <laughs> Maybe not. But she would sit under the palm and she would speak God's word and decide disputes for the people because she was both a prophet and a judge. But she also has another title in chapter five, and it's not prophet, it's not judge, it is mother. And I love this text. It says this, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jaal, the highways were abandoned, travelers took to winding paths, villagers in Israel would not fight. You know what that's describing? It's describing the terror in which they lived. You couldn't go out on the streets and walk without a bodyguard. You couldn't live in a village that didn't have tall walls and security grates around it. You were afraid of the enemy. So she says, this was the situation in Israel until, they held back until what? Until Deborah arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. You know, it's as if uh, she, she's, um, She's taking that role of mother bear, but not just for her family, for the whole nation, and standing up. And it's interesting, in the text, we find Deborah both sitting and rendering judgments, as well as standing up when the time came to call Barak in to go and fight on behalf of the people of Israel. And I want to just pause, and I want to just ask this, you know, think about these three characters, Deborah, and then we're going to look at Barak, and then we're going to look at Jael. And I, and I want you to consider a role you might play in this narrative. And one role you might play as you face cruel, oppressive powers around us in this world is you might play the role of Deborah. And what is the Deborah role? Well, Deborah has a good role. She sits underneath a palm tree, and she is a source of consummate wisdom and she has attuned her ear to the voice of God, and she is able to speak wisely to the people of God in ways that help them and build them up. And so if you're gonna play the Deborah role, it might mean that you need to take some time to cultivate an ear, to attune your, your ear to the voice of God, to learn the scriptures, the Bible, to understand the word of God, 
to, 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 to pray deeply, to develop a, a, a spirit of discernment so that you can decide cases. This is the person of wisdom. You know, it's interesting, Deborah, it says, doesn't go from people to people and insert her opinions unasked for. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the people who talk the most have the least to say? Have you ever noticed that the people who are most willing to give their opinions often are the ones whose opinions have been unasked for? But here is Deborah, she is sitting and people are coming to her. And as they come, she is able to render judgments. She's a source of wisdom to people in the midst of cruel oppression. But not only is she sitting and able to render judgments, the, Je the Deborah role also will stand up when it's time to stand and move into action. Deborah says, they were in trouble until I rose up. You know, at the, at the very beginning of the great poem of Deborah in chapter five, there is this celebration because the leaders took the lead. In other words, people stepped up and they did what needed to be done. And if you're gonna take the Deborah role, it means you might need to look around and to step up and do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So number one, you could play the role of Deborah, the mother of Israel. But there's a second role, and it's not the role of Deborah, it's the role of Barak. And it's interesting because in our story, Barak sort of reveals that he's the guy in the story who needs a mother, or at least he, he needs this mother, he needs Deborah. Look at what it says in the text. So she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, so apparently, as the story goes on, it appears that Barak has kind of been passive. He's the general, and the enemy is at the gates, and he is oppressing them, but it seems like he has pulled back and has not stepped up to lead. And so he gets called to the principal's office, and he gets taken before, he gets summoned before Deborah, and she says, look, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. Look, you have sat around long enough. It is time to stand up and lead. And so she summons him to go and gather together the troops. And then he says, and then she says, and the Lord says this, I will draw out Sesera the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and with his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And so God says, look, marshal the troops, bring them to battle, and when you do so, I will bring Jabin's general Sesera, and he's gonna come with all of his troops, and I am gonna give him into your hand. Now, Barak is not too sure because I think when he is summoned by Deborah, he's got one thing on his mind. And the thing I think he has on his mind are those 900 chariots of iron. It is the weaponry of his enemy. You know, seven times in this passage, the chariots are mentioned. It is clearly a source of terror. It's an important feature in the narrative. And the chariots, I think, stand in for just about anything in our lives that we might feel like we are powerless to defeat. 
I can't take that thing on. The problem seems too big. It's too much. And this is Barak. He sees the chariots and he is withdrawn. He's not stepping up. And so she says, God is going to be with you. God will go before you. He's going to bring your enemy into your very hands and you will defeat him. But again, Brock is not too sure. So he said to her, well, look, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, sometimes people criticize Barak for inviting Deborah to come. But listen, Deborah is a prophet of God. She carries the word of God to the people of God. Why wouldn't he want Deborah with him? And so he says, look, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. And so she said to him, look, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sesera into the hand of a woman. It's almost as if she's saying, look, this battle is not about your ego. It's not about your glory. In fact, when the battle's all done, the enemy is ultimately going to be defeated, not by your hand, but I'm going to hand him into the hand of another woman. And as the story unfolds, we learn it's not Deborah. That's not the mother. It's a different mother, kind of a tough mother. We're going to learn about in a little bit. But, he, but she says, look, you will, your road will not lead to glory, for the Lord will sell Sesera into the hand of a woman. So he hears that. He's like, okay, you're going to go with me. Deal, I'll go. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. I love this. He goes out to marshal the troops, and immediately all of the troops stand and they gather at his feet. They are ready to follow Barak. It turns out that Barak was more of a courageous leader than maybe he thought he was. Pastor and civil rights activist Benjamin Hooks once quipped, if you think you are leading and turn around to see no one following, then you're just taking a walk. <laughs> Listen, Barak is not just taking a walk. 10,000 troops have rallied to his side and they are ready to risk anything and fight. And when Sesera was told that Barak, the son of Benanam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sesera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. So again, we're hearing about the scary chariots of iron, the thing he's like, I can't defeat those, you know. And all of the men who were with him from Harasheth, Hegoim, to the river Kishon. So now, you know, Barak looks up and the troops start coming and right in front are these 900 terrifying chariots of iron. And now these two armies are facing each other. And Barak is starting to get afraid. And so he looks over at Deborah and Deborah says to him, look up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sesera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. First Lady Rosalind Carter once said this. She said, a leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. 
And here Deborah leads Barak where he doesn't want to go, but where he ought to be, namely commanding and leading the armies of God in trust in the power of God to defeat the enemies of God. And so Barak with Deborah at his side leads the people into battle. And the Lord routed Sesera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sesera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I love that little line, don't you? He got down from his chariot. Why? Well, because the chariot was supposed to be the thing that gave them the advantage. You know, in the next uh, chapter, chapter five, there's a poem, and it appears that what stopped these chariots in their tracks was that Yahweh, the God of Israel, came in a storm. And there was a great downpour, and they were gathered at the river, and the river's banks overflowed, and they came and flooded, and those chariots were stopped right in their tracks, and the people of Israel were able to rout them. And what happens to Caesarea? Well, now his army is defeated, and he takes off on foot. And Barak, meanwhile, pursued the chariots and the army of Hesheroth, Haguim, and all the army of Caesarea filled by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. Now, what's interesting is oftentimes Barak is criticized for being fearful and passive. But I think there's a little bit more to Barak than that because later in the book of Hebrews, Barak actually appears in the hall of faith. He is a champion of faith. But his faith surfaces, I think, in an interesting way. You know, his faith surfaces in the midst of fear. You can be both fearful and also have faith. You can be courageous and afraid. Sometimes courage actually takes place right in the context of fear, doesn't it? You just think, I can't do this. I don't know if I can. And then you are brought to a place where you need to rely upon God to do what you cannot do and only God can do. And I think that's the faith that's cultivated in Barak in the midst of this terribly fearful and difficult situation. And by faith, he led an army to fight against all of those chariots. But listen, here is what Barak knew. Barak knew that he could not face this enemy alone. He could not face this controlling, destructive power alone. And listen, with those destructive forces in your life that you battle with, you cannot fight them alone. You know, there are, you know, deep bitterness and unforgiveness that has a grip on your heart and life, and you need help to overcome that. And, and there, there, there are addictive patterns, and there are, you know, relational patterns in your marriage that are destructive, and there, there are issues that you're facing, and you cannot face them alone. And I think Barack understood this, so he invited Deborah to come and to stand by his side. He needed a mother, you know. And, and listen, what we often need in our struggle against our own Caesaras are mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers of faith. People who believe stronger and better than we do. You know, Deborah wasn't afraid. She was like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'll, I'll go to battle with you. And sometimes you need people who believe when you don't who can trust God when you can't, 
who can pray for you when it feels like you can't speak another word because the pain is just too deep. Here is what Barak knew. He could not fight this battle alone, and neither can you. And so if you, if you want to play the Barak role in the, in the battle against Sesera, then you need courage in the face of your fear, and you need friends and you need mentors, you need mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of faith to walk beside you and strengthen you. And listen, in this whole realm of parenting on Mother's Day, like parenting is something you cannot do alone. You need people to walk beside you and there are seasons in parenting that are excruciatingly painful and difficult and heart-wrenching. And so often we withdraw and we only put on a happy face at church rather than open up the deep well of pain that exists because of the people we care about the most and the pain that exists in our heart as a result of what's happening in their lives. We need people who can walk beside us and pray with us and and give us wisdom and, and speak God's word over us. You know, that is what Deborah did for Barak. She spoke the truth of God over him in a way that was truer and better than he was speaking over himself. You know, he, he must have felt like, I can't do this. And she's like, the Lord is with you. You know, I, 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 there's no way. The Lord goes before you. He will rout your enemies. She is speaking truth over his life. And that word of truth that was spoken over him makes all the difference. So there's Deborah. She's the wise woman who sat under the palm. There's Barak. He's the, the terrified general who, who, who has his faith emboldened as he had Deborah walk beside him, as he had the army come around him. And as he looked up and saw God who went before him. And then finally, there's one more character. And that's uh, Jael. Now, this is kind of interesting. She's, uh, she's kind of a tough cookie. So let's read about what, what happens next. So, so Sesera, who's the general, he gets out. He like escapes from the battle. And so all the troops go down, but then the general gets away. And where does he go? Well, he seeks to find safe harbor at one of the allies of Jabin, the king of Canaan. It says, Sesera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So they had a covenant, they had an agreement. Look, we're, we're together on this. And so he's like, I, I'm going to go to, to their house. And, and looking out the window of the tent is Heber's wife, Jael. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and she said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. And so he's like, yes, you know, so he turns aside, he goes in and he turned aside to her into the tent and then she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. And so here, Jael is playing a maternal role. She takes him in. She wraps him up in a blanket. She gives him his warm milk. And then she lays him down for a nice nap. 
And then while he's asleep, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from his weariness. And so he died. Was that last line necessary? (laughs) The book of Judges is something of like the kill bill of the Bible. It's like... You know, the author is like the Quentin Tarantino. You know, it's dark, it's grisly, it's violent. There's body parts. It's, you know, but here's Jael. And she takes him down. And then behold, Barak was pursuing Sesera and Jael went out to meet him and said, come and I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. He's probably thinking, I'll protect you. And he went into her tent and there lay Sesera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And she's like, nailed it. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. Now, let's just think briefly about Jael, the woman with the tent peg. And what can we learn about her in our own battle with Sesera? Now, I hope you're realizing that Jesus never wants us to think about our true enemy as other human beings who are created in the image of God. Jesus wants us to imagine our true enemies as being the great enemies of the human race, sin and death and darkness. Sin and death and darkness that gets a grip on our own life, sometimes gets a root in our own homes. Sin and death that begins to wreak havoc in our neighborhoods, creates toxic environments at work and in government and in systems. Jesus wants us to see Sesera as being something that goes beyond the human beings around us. It is the deep power of sin and death and darkness and the devil. And I think what Jael teaches us is, look, sometimes we do need to take the course of Deborah and we need to sit and be a source of wisdom for those who will come and ask. And sometimes like Deborah, we need to stand up and we need to rally the troops and marshal people together in order to take action. And sometimes like Barak, we need to stand up and overcome our courage and we need to engage in the battle. And listen, sometimes like Jael, what we need to do is this. You need to take direct and decisive action against darkness in your heart and life. You need to take a a stake and drive it right through the head of that thing that is got a grip on your life. And you know what we do sometimes? Instead of driving a stake through the temple of our bitterness and unforgiveness and our petty hatreds and our gossiping lips and, and you know, our, our addictions and our abusive behaviors and words, what we do is we take them in and we nurse them. And we wrap them in a blanket and we give them milk and we only make the problem get bigger and worse. But I think in our story, what we're being taught is, look, there are days, there are moments when you need to step up and take decisive action. And as Jesus said, if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Like take radical and decisive action against the stuff that is destroying your life. And listen, there are some some of you, like, You know that there is stuff going on in your heart and you have for far too long simply nursed it or you have hid it in the tent. 
And you need to bring it out in the open and you need to deal with it. You need to enroll and celebrate recovery. You need to confess to a counselor or a friend or a pastor. You need to come clean to a spouse. You need to get your life right because if you don't kill sin, it can kill you. You know, Caesarea, you know, he was a wicked tyrant. In the next Psalm, we learn about his exploits and what he would intend to do with his victims, the way he would assault and abuse the men and women and children that ultimately came underneath his rule. And listen, you cannot let that go on. The stuff that is controlling you, that is constricting your humanity, that is robbing your joy, that is interfering with your life with God, you have got to take decisive action against You've got to put a stake through it. And I think that's what we're learning from jail. So you could play the role of Deborah. You could play the role of Barack. You could play the role of Jael. There's one role in the story that we are not invited to play. It is the final character in the narrative, and it is the one who we find all throughout the narrative. And it's not Deborah, the prophet and judge. And it's not Barak, the general. And it's not that tough mother, Jael. It is the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. The one who ultimately takes responsibility for, de for defeating the enemies of his people and setting them free from all of the destructive forces that are wreaking havoc in their life. God ultimately is in charge. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. But ultimately, it was the Lord who gave him into their hands. It was the Lord who went before them. It was the Lord who routed their enemy before them, and it was God who subdued him. God is the hero in this story. God is the great victor. And one day, many, 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 many generations after the story of Deborah, a hero that is stronger and better than Deborah and Barak and Jael would be born into this world. God himself would become flesh and walk among us so that God could go before us and by his own sacrificial self-giving love, bear in his own heart and life and body the stakes of human sin that are driven into him so that he might ultimately and finally bring all of the powers of darkness to their knees and release the captives, namely our own hearts and lives, and enable us to find freedom in the healing power and love of God. And that's very, very good news. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this story of one of the great mothers in Israel, Deborah. And we ask God that you might enable us to discern how you want us to work the details of your word into our own hearts and lives. God, would you enable us with strength and courage 
so that we could step up and do battle against those things that are wreaking havoc in our life, in our homes, in the lives of people around us. And God, by your grace and by your strength and by the power of the crucified and risen Jesus, may you enable us to find new strength, new deliverance, new help so that we could walk in the freedom that you intend for us so that you could be the one who receives glory and honor. God, you are our great hero. You are the power that sets us free. Amen.